If you have a Bible with you, go to Romans chapter 8, and uh, maybe it's on your phone or your iPad, or maybe you have a hard copy, um, or in the racks around you, you can find it that way. Romans chapter 8, and we're going to be in verse 1. If you're not familiar with the Bible, that's um, in the New Testament, that's the latter half of the book. Just thumb through until you find the book of Romans, then go to chapter 8. I want to remind you of the weight of what we're doing and what God is doing through us here. And I, and I don't mean what we're doing, but what God is doing through us. Last night I had a conversation with someone after the Saturday night service um, who let me know that a 35-year-old uh, relative of theirs has been attending here at New Hope, and uh, she has, uh, had, has had zero church experience, never been in a church, had no faith relationship, knew that members of her family had um, different understandings and just kind of opted out of everything. Um, but God brought her here to the Lansing area, and uh, she moved up here from Texas, and um, a family member invited her to come to New Hope. And so over the last 10 months, um, she's been exposed to the book of Romans, and uh, God just showed her things that she could have never understood on her own. And God, working through his word through the book of Romans, drew her into relationship, and she now professes Jesus as her Savior. How amazing, right? So our God is in the business of seeking and saving those who are lost, even when they don't know they're lost, right? That, that's what he said. That's what I'm here for. I come to seek and save those who are lost. And so he uses his word, and he uses brothers and sisters in Christ, and he uses Bible studies and children's ministries, everything you can name, he uses things to draw people in, even NASCAR race cars, right? He'll draw people in, maybe out of intrigue, and God will do what God does, and he does his work. So obviously what we look at today is weighty because eternity hangs in the balance, and we don't know what God's going to do with it in this moment. We don't know what God's doing with people who are watching online right now. So let's pray that way that God would do what he can alone do as his word is alive, it's sharp, and it's active. Would you pray with me? Father, I, I believe that your word is active because you said it is. There's no other piece of literature like this in the world. I can't name another book that's called Alive. And yet, because you breathe life into it, it causes us to understand you in new ways, ways that go far beyond our experience. You reveal things, and so we ask that you would do that right now. Every person who's taken the time to be here in this moment, God, bless this time. Use it. Push on us where you need to push. Where you need to raise questions, raise questions. And where you need to bring conviction, do that. Where you need to bring encouragement, Father, you know the hearts of every individual. Do that. Do what you promised you would do. We ask for this in Jesus' matchless name. Amen. If I say Declaration of Independence to you, immediately an image pops in your mind of a document. You probably think of something that's sitting behind a, a glass case in Washington, D.C. Some of you have probably been there to the Smithsonian, and, and you've seen the Declaration of Independence, and it's, it's framed nicely, bulletproof glass, kept in a chamber where it's sealed. 
whether things can't get at it. And yet most of us, when we hear Declaration of Independence, we don't really stop and think of the content of that declaration. What does it actually say? Well, within it, it reminds us that we are a fiercely independent people. Because when the framers of the Constitution sat down and wrote that declaration of independence saying, essentially, we push off any form of bondage. We, don't want, we do not want to be enslaved to anyone or anything. And so as a result, generations later, you and I, we understand what it is to have independence. We love our independence. And we are, as Americans, fiercely independent. United States citizens understand that is a gift given to us. And so when the framers started out, it sounds this way. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, and they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Among those are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Kind of takes you back to eighth grade history class, doesn't it? Just like, wow, I'm right back there. I find that that declaration is only outdone by an even greater declaration that God makes in Romans chapter 8 and verse 1. And we, we've heard it last week, and we know what's coming this morning because God made a declaration about us. God makes a declaration of freedom on our behalf. You'll find in chapter 8 that Paul raises the issue of freedom four times. There's four different freedoms that you're going to discover next week as we go back into this. But along with the four freedoms, he talks about the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit who is within you. Nineteen times he combines freedom with the Holy Spirit. And that's a, a reason for that is because you find the Holy Spirit and freedom together in the Bible. Let me show you from the book of 2 Corinthians 3.17, look at the screen, where the Spirit of the Lord is, the Holy Spirit it's talking about, there is liberty. See, the two go hand in hand. Where the freedom is at must be the Spirit of God is there. If the Spirit of God is there, there's liberty. So where you find the Spirit of God, you find freedom, and where you find freedom, you find life. And so therefore, God says in Romans 8.1, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, the ultimate declaration of freedom, and it's made on your behalf. God's saying, this is something I have done for you. You can't even do it on your own. It's a gift from me. And if you're in Christ Jesus, you have it. You learned last week the verdict has been removed from you. We use the word katakrima, the Greek word. It's in your notes also this morning. You'll see it come up in just a minute to remind you again. Now, no condemnation. The verdict removed. You now have life because the Holy Spirit of God has been placed within you. I'm not sure, though, that many Christians take that verse at its full value. I'm just not sure that many do. Now, I'll give you guys the exception. You're, you're here at 1130 on a beautiful day in September. You could be out golfing or kayaking or whatever manner of fun you want to do, and you chose to be here and so you probably are taking this a little more seriously, especially after 46 weeks in the book of Romans, that when God says there's no condemnation, he really means that for those who are in Jesus. 
But I'm not sure. I think not many actually take that as seriously as they should. Absolute freedom from eternal judgment. Anything that could be leveled against you for eternity has been removed. No condemnation. Is that not awesome? It is awesome. And I don't use that word often, and I don't use it lightly. The word awesome is used way too often today. But God is awesome. And so this word fits specifically for who he is and what he has done. There's no condemnation. It is awesome. And the basis for this breathtaking assurance from God is found in the phrase, in Christ Jesus. Because that's where it comes from. We were reminded in chapters 1 through 7, if you're in Adam, you got condemnation. And we're all in Adam. We're all the offspring of our progenitors, Adam and Eve, the, the first of humanity. And when they sinned, it was passed on to every single person. So if you're in Adam, and we are, you got condemnation. But when you come to chapter 8, you find in Jesus, no condemnation. Condemnation in Adam, but not in Jesus. Now, look very, very closely at that verse, Romans 8.1. If, if you got it open, maybe it's sitting in your lap, or just remember what I just said. It does not say, and you will not find it say any place, only for those who make no mistakes, or, or for those who have no failures, you can get in. That's not what it's saying. Christ followers do have failures. We have sinned, we do sin, and we will sin again. As part of the fleshly battle on this planet, do we experience consequences for our poor choices? Absolutely, yes. Consequences all the time. That's why God calls us to a higher standard, and he says to you, as a Christ follower, don't go there. Don't do that. It's going to come back to bite you. Choose my way. My way will bring you life. Just think about Abraham with me. Abraham lied about who his wife was. David commits adultery and murder. Peter, he tries to kill a guy with a sword. Unfortunately for the guy that Peter was swinging at, Peter's a fisherman. He's not that good with a sword, right? So he misses, and he cuts the guy's ear off. He wanted to hit him in the head. So you've got a liar, a murderer, adulterer, and a guy who wants to commit murder. Well, did they suffer consequences on this planet for what they did? Yeah, they committed an offense. Did they suffer consequences? Yes. Were they destined to be banned from God forever? No. There's no eternal condemnation in Jesus Christ. So this condemnation that is no longer on you, the penalty of death has been eternally removed and that allows you to stand sinless before God forever. So while chapter 7 has the weight on failure, chapter 8, the weight is on the spectacular reality that even if you're an author or a prophet of the Bible, and you fail, or you're the weakest Christian ever, and you fail, either one of those, it doesn't matter. You have complete freedom from eternal condemnation, and that's why I asked you last week to say with me, I am free. You are. You are free in Jesus. I just don't think we take verse 1 seriously enough that there is therefore now no condemnation. In Christ Jesus. And the key is that phrase, in Christ Jesus. Now, if you're a new person to church, maybe you've never been to church before and you're like that 35-year-old I was describing a few minutes ago, you might logically say, well, okay, I hear there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. How does that work? 
Why is there no condemnation? Well, typically a Christian would give a really short answer and would say something like, well, because of the cross, right? Assuming that somebody's going to understand that. And I, I would give that short answer, well, because of the cross of Jesus. And you're going to leave people with a glaze over their eyes thinking, what, what does that mean? Paul gives a much more eloquent and profound answer than just the cross. Go with me to verse 2. He says in verse 2, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free for the, from the law of sin and death. Now, catch what he's doing here. Paul's contrasting two different laws, or what we would call principles of operation. He's talking about a lower law, the older law, not the Mosaic law. He's talking about a lower law, the law of sin and death, and he's contrasting it to a higher law, the law of the spirit of life. What's the lower law? The lower law is the law of sin and the power of it, and it inevitably results in eternal separation from God. But then there's the higher law he's talking about here, the law of the spirit of life. And the higher law sets a believer free from the power of the old or the lower law. Well, okay, Mark, how does that work? How does it set me free? Here's a big picture for you. The law of life is greater and bigger than the law of death. Well, what's the evidence of that, Mark? Well, the evidence of that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is greater, Right? He's the law of the spirit of life. He's greater. He's bigger, stronger. Oh, can, you, can you help me understand that? Absolutely. Go with me to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2 and verse 24. God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death. Since why? Since it was impossible for him to be held. Death holds everything that you and I know. It holds everything in its power, from the flour that you buy at the store to the loaf of bread. It's decaying, it's falling apart, essentially crumbling before your eyes. And you too are doing the same thing in your flesh, decaying. But one, one alone beat that power because he's greater. His name is Jesus. And he has power over death, so it's impossible for him to be held in its power. So in the same way, the power of God, which defeats death, also defeats sin in your life. Do you believe that? In your present life here on earth. And you know why people have a struggle believing that? Because of the amount of sin that we commit on a regular basis. I think it's got, it's got such a stranglehold on me. There's a reason for that. That's what we're going to get into this morning. There's a reason why it has a grip around your ankles. In the same way that the power of God, which defeats death, it also defeats sin in your life. So let's go to this phrase, the law of the spirit of life. I want you to say amen and say it loudly if you agree with this statement. It is the spirit, the Holy Spirit of the living God who provides victory Okay, victory over sin. God says, I put a spirit within you. My Holy Spirit will bring victory to you in your life, and you can have victory over sin. Hear this. I don't know what you were raised with, what your background is, but the Holy Spirit of God is placed within you at the moment of salvation. It is the possession of every single believer in this room, bar none. It's not something you get when you're more mature in Christ. It's not something you finally achieve maybe when you understand the Bible. God says, I give it to you right at the moment of salvation. It may be there in seed form, and maybe you can't point to it all the time, 
But God says, my Holy Spirit is within you, and it's causing you to live, walk, act, think, talk in ways that reflect my son, Jesus, to become more and more and more and more like him. So what is this law, the spirit of life? Well, the reality is you and I face defeat in our battles. The reason we feel like sin is always wrapping around our angles is we try to engage the enemy with our own strength, without the strength of the Holy Spirit. God says, I've got weapons for you, weapons that you don't use very often, like a helmet and a shield and a sword and a breastplate. Remember all those things you learned as you read through the Bible? God says, I will equip you. Why don't you come to my weapons room more often? I will outfit you because you don't have to do this on your own. Did you know that? God does not want you to engage the enemy on your own. Look with me on the screen, John 15, 5. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Do you think God meant that? I think he meant that. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So why are you trying to do it on your own? Why are you trying to walk in the power of your own strength as opposed to the power of God's strength? The sad reality of chapter 7, I I would say the sad difficulty that you see Paul complaining about is the experience that he's describing, it's self-imposed. Let me remind you of what he said. Those things I don't want to do, I do do. And the things that I do do, I don't want to do those. Wretched man that I am. So you got an author of the Bible who's being honest. And she said, this is the way it really is. In my flesh, I struggle with these things. So you got a guy who's being really, really honest and frustrated and recognizing there's spiritual crashes that comes his way. And they come your way on a regular basis. We go through spiritual trauma, but the reality of what we're being told here is the natural outcome of failing to appropriate the Spirit of God is that you're going to struggle and get tripped up with sin. So God says, I got the Spirit of life, and it's right there for you. I don't know how you came in here this morning. You might be feeling today really, really weak in your walk. Maybe you feel like you're not making any progress and and like maybe things are stagnant or even like you've gone backwards and you just aren't doing what you thought you would do in Jesus. Maybe you got a lot of failure. Hear this about the Spirit of God. God's Spirit can and does bring life to a dead spiritual heart. He does that. He's the Spirit of life and He's greater. He's not lesser, He's more. That's how he can destroy sin and death. So in Jesus, you have been set free. Can I remind you of how you were saved? Look with me on the screen at Titus chapter 3. God says, this is is how I did it. it. It says this, God saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done. See, we couldn't do it. Not on the basis of which deeds of which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. Praise God for his mercy. He's a good God. He's merciful. But according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Remember this. If you remember nothing else when you leave today, in Jesus, you are no longer a slave to sin. 
You don't have to be that way. You're no longer under its control. Why? Because verse 2 makes it very clear. Christ Jesus has set you free. So live like it. God says, I've got my spirit released in you. If Christ Jesus has set you free, it means the power of the living God is in you. It's there. Now, if verse 2 was a lot to chew on, you feel like you've been drinking from a fire hydrant, just hang on. We'll go to verse 3 because it's even more going to blow you over. Verse 3, and that's all the further we're going to be able to get today. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. What the law was unable to do, God did. What Mark Kring couldn't do through his own work systems, God did. If you're a theologian, you recognize that as the most concise statement of substitutionary atonement in all the Bible. If you wonder what I've just said, a theologian, a theology is the study of God. Theo is God. Theology, study of God. A theologian is somebody who studies God. Well, you're doing that right now. You're studying God. So theologians recognize what has just been said in this verse as the most concise statement of substitutionary atonement. Some of you are thinking right now, this subs to what? Substitutionary atonement. It means something has been put in your place. If I've lost you on that, hear this. God knows your need even before you knew you had a need. God knows you have a need and he initiates the action before you even knew you had a need. God moved towards you. The Godhead did that. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit put together a plan of action before the rebellion on this planet ever even was occurring, before this planet was ever even made. God put a plan in place, and we find Jesus arriving in the form and the nature that resembles ours. God the Son becomes Jesus the man, and his fingernails grow, and his eyelashes fall out, and he's got to brush his teeth every day. And he hangs around with sweaty fishermen. The, the condescension of God is absolutely amazing. So bear down with me on verse 3. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. How inconceivable is that? A lot of the world trips over that thought. Well, that sounds like a comic book, Mark. God becoming man? God on earth? This is God's word. He says, I became flesh and I dwelt among you. You've read that on Christmas cards before. It's called the incarnation. Dr. Paul Reese is a modern-day theologian, had an insight on this. I put his quote in your notes this morning, but also it's on the screen for you to see. Don't forget that in all this wide universe and in all the dim reaches of history, there has never been such a demonstration of self-effacing humility as when the Son of God in sheer grace descended to this planet. The big picture of this, honestly, is so profound. It is so weighty that I honestly even hesitate to talk about it because I know I'm going to do it injustice. That God... Jesus existed in the form of God. Philippians 2. And he came here. 
put on flesh? Even where your mind's going right now, you can't imagine it. My words fall short. I, I hesitate to even say it. In the likeness, Scripture talks about his outward appearance looked like us, but look very, very closely at the verse, and you'll see it doesn't say he came in sinful flesh. That's the one exception. That would make him a sinner. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh, came as a man. Dr. John Stott had an insight along these lines. He simply said it this way. His humanity was both real and sinless simultaneously. Did he have the capacity to be tempted into sin? Yep. Just like every one of you experienced. Some of you experienced it yesterday. Tempted to do things other than God's will. Did Jesus have the capacity to be tempted into sin? Yes, otherwise the temptation would have meant nothing. And he was tempted fiercely. I would say much more fiercely than you and I ever encounter. Because he's God and he's got all the power. I have never had the power to make stones into bread. No one has ever offered to me the kingdoms of this world. But that was put before him. And the temptation was great. And yet we're told, even though those things were offered to him and the temptation was powerful, he was tempted in every way that you and I are. And yet in those things he sinned not. Look with me on the screen, Hebrews 4.15. Tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. So check this. He resisted everything that Satan could throw against him. Every desire to let sin have a rule over him. And for the first time since Adam and Eve ever walked this planet, sin had to yield to the victor. It never known anything like this. Sin had always ruled, had always reigned. Since Adam and Eve walked this planet, it had never run into this. And then it has to yield to the victor. Now we know who this one is, and we know what he's done, and that he condescended to this planet. In order to go forward, I have to go backward with you into the very beginning of verse 3. And Paul makes a huge statement. For what the law could not do. And then that's where we get hung up as humans, because we want to do works things. We want to make God like us by doing things that we think will make him happy with us, and maybe he'll just let us in one day if we just keep the scales into our favor. The law represents all of those things, but Paul says what the law could not do, what can the law do? Well, we said the law can reveal a few weeks ago. It reveals what's going on in your heart. The law cannot make you righteous. What it can do is it can expose that you are not righteous. The law can not make you perfect, but it sure will point out the fact that you are not perfect. It'll show your imperfection. Sad reality is we live among many people who believe that they can hit God's standard of righteousness in their own power that they can live up to his standard by doing enough things to get God to like them. But watch what God says about this. Look with me on the screen at James 2.10. Whoever keeps the whole law, are you watching this? And yet stumbles in one point, just one thing? One thing? Guilty of all. See, Adam and Eve only had to do one thing to breach the relationship. All they did was eat a piece of fruit. 
I've done way worse than that. They ate a piece of fruit, and that was enough because they went against God's word. God said, don't go there, and they went there, and sin rushed in and passed to all of humanity. Even a single sin, no matter how small, is sufficient to disqualify us from heaven. Let me give you an example of that. You've heard me use uh, this 20-year-old guy as an example before um, over the course of the summer in July, and I'm going to go back into his story again. He's found in Matthew 19, and he's a 20-something, so we'll call him a millennial, okay? Because when we think of 20-somethings, we think of millennials, so think of this millennial with me. He, he rolls up into Jesus' presence, and he asks the ultimate question of Jesus, what do I have to do to get eternal life? Big question. He starts off by saying, good teacher, will you tell me how to do these things? And Jesus says, why do you call me good? There's no one good but one. And let me go to what Jesus actually said to him. This is Matthew 19. You're not going to see it on the screen, so just listen to this. Teacher, what good things shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? And he said to him, why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one who is good, but if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. He said to him, this is the millennial talking, which ones, because I got my list and I got my pen and I'm about ready to check them off because I think I'm really good with God and I just want you to test me. So watch Jesus' response. And Jesus said, you shall not commit murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor. And stop right there. Who's your neighbor? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, oh man, I got this. This is so good. This is his response. All these things I have kept. Nailed it. What am I still lacking? Because I got my list checked off and I've done all these things. What am I lacking? So Jesus' response, if you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieved, for he was one who owned much property. He's a really, really wealthy millennial. He's got everything that he could hope for, and he's also really religious. And so he shows up for church at the 815 service, right? And then he stays over for the 945 service to serve in children's ministry. And then he also comes to SOS on Thursdays, and he helps Debbie stuff those papers for the children. They put stickers together, and they're working hard. And he even talks about God at Bigby. Oh, the God conversation going on. I'm like, I nailed this. Really, really religious. But his heart is demonstrating that despite his diligence to keep the law, he's failed on the two greatest commandments. Think about what James said. Whoever keeps all of the law but fails in one point is guilty of them all. Somebody came to Jesus and said, what are the two greatest commandments? And Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is like unto it, love your, finish it, church, neighbor. Who's your neighbor? So here's what you do, young man. You got a lot of wealth. Empty your bank account. 
go and give it to your neighbor. And then come and follow me. See, it wasn't the money issue. is that the money had the hold of the heart. Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one commandment is guilty of them all. Well, God's standing right in front of him. And God says, do this. And he says, oh, um, hmm. That's the requirement. So you can see why he goes away really disappointed. Now, opposite to that is an auditorium full of Jesus followers who show up for the 1130 service on a beautiful day in September. And you trust in Jesus. And you can say emphatically, I can't hit that standard. I can't measure up to God's righteousness. I can't do this on my own. I need Jesus. And you are immediately saved from your sin. And as a result, for the first time ever, able to meet God's righteous standard. Now check this. The very thing the 20-something guy came to Jesus trying to find, he walks away from. Jesus said, you want eternal life? Just make me first. Put me at the top. Yeah, I really like my toys. I'm going to go with that, right? Whatever toys represent in the life of the average person. That's what he chooses. Can I take you to Acts 13, 38? This is what God says he does for us. He has done for many of you already. Forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, new hope. Forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you and through him, Jesus, meaning everyone who believes is freed from what, church? From all things. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because he has freed you from all things, not just some things, not just those little things you still seem to trip over and hang on to. Jesus has freed you from all things. The law cannot condemn you any longer because Jesus condemns sin and he's greater, he's bigger, he's more powerful And so he crushes it. And verse 3 says, he condemns sin in the flesh. The law condemns you. The law tries to bring condemnation because it reveals and it pulls out that the 20-something really, really didn't chase after God. He really wanted his toys. And so he doesn't love his neighbor greater than himself. And he doesn't love God more than himself. He loves his things. And the law has revealed his heart. And God says, I condemn sin in the flesh. And we use the word condemn so loosely here, we have misunderstood in our society what it actually means. Because we got dictators in North Korea right now who are launching ICBMs and perfecting nuclear missiles. And the world comes against that and says, we condemn that. The leaders of this world are literally using those words. We condemn the actions of North Korea. And yet it's a word Because most of society steps back and says, okay, so like, what does that mean? You condemn it. Well, eventually, the nations of the world are probably going to have to take some action. But condemn, katakrima, this word that we used last week, you see it on the screen and it's in your notes and I referred to it earlier when it's talking about condemnation. It's not only talking about the sentence, the adverse sentence against you. Condemnation is actually talking about the penalty. And the penalty in the case of sin is that God condemned it and destroyed it and obliterated it. 
Because with God comes condemnation, and condemnation follows by destruction. And with his destruction, he destroyed sin. So where sin once condemned you, Jesus now condemns sin. God can do that. God can obliterate it. God can wipe it out. And it's not just words. Jesus has delivered you from the power of sin and its penalty over you. That's why you find the writer of 1 Corinthians in chapter 15 saying things like, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Look at that very closely. The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But this is why I had you stop in the middle of the service last week and give God thanks for your salvation because you find the writers of the New Testament doing constantly what we're talking about. Thank you, God. Thank you for my salvation. Thank you that I'm not condemned. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Finish It Church. Okay, you get another shot at that one. All right. <laughs> I'm about to let you out of here. I'm going to let you loose on the world. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our... Amen. Way to go, you guys. Make you an example to all the other services. They yelled it out. I won't tell them that I had to coach you. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, God. Thank you for my salvation. I can't go into verse 4 with you. It's too meaty. It's too rich. It's going to take too much time. We're going to go to it next week because it actually talks about the outcome of the reality of everything that you just discovered. And you want to address the issue of how sin tangles you and trips you? That's verse 4. Let me just read it to you. So that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Hear this, and don't reach for your car keys just yet. It is the desire of God. It is great desire that you would live out the perfect righteousness that he has transferred over to you. It is his great desire that your positional righteousness would be matched by your practical righteousness. In other words, that your walk would match your talk. That's where verse 4 goes. That we would actually look like we talk about when we speak of Jesus, do we look like the Jesus we talk about? So let this thought just register with you as you pray about this next week, what's coming? Everything that is a spiritual reality, and you just learned a lot of spiritual reality, everything that is a spiritual reality is also a spiritual responsibility. So we've got a lot of responsibility because we've got a lot of reality of what God has done for us. Here's the cool thing. We can do those things through the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit who is within us because that Holy Spirit gives you both the desire and the ability. So God says, show up at my weapons room. I'll equip you. I'll prepare you for those things that want to trip you up. Here's how I'm going to send you out with a declaration of dependence because we are dependent upon the one who gave us freedom. 
we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all mankind was created equal, and that we have been endowed with certain rights from our Creator on high. But most of all, we have been endowed with a gift if we will believe that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the ultimate declaration of freedom. Let me pray for you that you retain this as you go out and take on the world. Let's pray together. Father, I I pray for these Christ followers. Those who know you in relationship and have identified Jesus as their Savior, I pray that they would respond to the reality that you have revealed in your word this morning. We have been set free, and therefore we no longer have to walk in the attractions of the flesh because you placed your Holy Spirit within us. God, I pray for those who are in the auditorium that might be working through this, and and maybe they're not there yet. Maybe they're like the 35-year-old woman we talked about earlier, and you're choosing to allow them to have time. Whether it takes 10 months or 10 years, it's up to you, Father, but draw them. Draw them into intimate relationship with you. Show them that they can have a brand new beginning in Jesus Christ. I pray for both of these things. I pray especially, God, that we would leave here encouraged and that Christ followers would be bold as a result of this courage and that we would speak freely of the one who has redeemed us but that we would do it graciously. God, I ask for this in Jesus' matchless name and all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.